You're listening to the Modern Learners Podcast, and I'm Missy Emler, your host. In this podcast, we explore topics in education through the modern learner's lens. We dig into our beliefs about learning, the modern contexts that impact learning in schools, and the practices that create the conditions for learning to take place. No matter how hard we challenge the status quo or how much we push your thinking, remember this, we're not asking you to change, we're asking you to learn. Now, let's get started. Today on the Modern Learners Podcast, my guest and I will close out our math theme that we've been exploring in February and open the door to our next theme for March, Places and Spaces. Last week, Dr. Nikki Newton mentioned Peter Liliadal's research on vertical, non-permanent spaces and their impact on learning. After reading more of Peter's research, I knew he was an important voice to bring to our conversation at Modern Learners. In today's show, you will personally meet Peter Liliadal. Currently, Peter is serving as a professor at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. He is also serving as the president of the Canadian Mathematics Education Study Group and the International Group for the Psychology of Mathematics Education. He has a body of work that he makes generously available on his website, which I'll link up in the show notes at modernlearners.com slash thinkingclassrooms. Peter goes into great detail about his research on thinking classrooms, and we get into the tactics of two specific principles. I'm rarely at a loss for words, but I spent much of this conversation in awe of the depth and complexity of his research, story, and the potential impact it will have on classrooms around the world. You might be thinking, Missy, Aren't all classrooms thinking classrooms? Truth be told, too many of us in the field of education take for granted and think that we fully know and understand what thinking and learning really means. But I think we take it for granted too much. So for today, let's put aside what we think we already know and listen to the research from Peter Liliadal on thinking classrooms. Hello, Peter. I am so excited that you are on the Modern Learners podcast today. I am—I don't think it could have worked out better because you are going to be the perfect bridge podcast between the two themes we're studying in our Modern Learners community. We spent most of February talking about math, our uh, deep-rooted beliefs in, about math and classrooms. We also talked about the modern context for math and some instructional practices that are evolving. And we're moving into places and spaces for March. And your work has been referenced several times, um, your work regarding thinking classrooms. And so I think you are the perfect bridge between math and places and spaces. So today we're going to talk about both. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So I've started the last math interviews with really getting into um, hearing about how your math identity was formed. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, okay, so, um, so I was born in Sweden, actually. And um, we moved from Sweden to Canada when I was eight years old. And while, when I was in Sweden, I was already, math was probably my favorite subject. Um, it had a lot of, I, I can't say why it was my favorite subject other than maybe it was just because I was good at it. And there was a bunch of things in math that I'd figured out on my own. And when we moved to Canada, English speaking country, uh, math was really the only thing I could take with me. Um, in the sense of when I got to school, everything else was a mystery. Uh, but I could, I could understand math, although some of the symbols were a little bit different here than they were in, in Sweden. And I think that was, went a long way to sort of cementing my relationship with mathematics at a young age, that, um, that it, was, it was the only thing that I felt competent in when I was in grade three and grade four in Canada. 
Um, and then as, as I became more competent in other areas of schooling, math just always stayed uh, as my passion. And um, I pursued, you know, honor streams in mathematics when I was in high school. I went and got a degree in mathematics in university, not knowing at all what I was going to do with it. Uh, just I was going to get a degree in mathematics and then go off and be a mathematician, whatever that meant. Um, partway through my degree, I decided, well, maybe I better figure out what I'm going to do with math. And I'd, I'd, I'd seen a, a talk around, um, it was about, co-op placements. Um, I never did a co-op, but, but one of the speakers had talked about the fact that math was a tool and you had to figure out a way to, a place to apply it. So I went off and I picked up a minor in computing thinking that, okay, so if math is the tool, then computing will be the place that I apply it. Um, it turned out I liked computing maybe a little bit too much. It was, it was almost addictive, the programming, and, and I kind of steered away from that probably for my own health. Um, I was just consumed by, the, by creating efficiencies and so on. Um, and then I decided, well, I, actually, as I was finishing up my math degree, a, a friend of mine was applying for the teacher education program. And he suggested I apply and I sort of did on a, on a whim thinking, oh yeah, being a math teacher, that'll be a good fallback position. And then when I, and then I started my teacher education program on the first day of my first practicum, I just absolutely fell in love with teaching mathematics. And, and ever since then, that's what I've been passionate about is the teaching of mathematics first, then the teaching of teachers of mathematics, uh, the pursuits of excellence in teaching in mathematics. And along the way, I've actually done, ironically, a lot of research on beliefs and attitudes around mathematics. And my own identity has been shaped by that research and that literature as well. And I now see mathematics, you know, back when I was an undergraduate and I was told that mathematics is a tool, that turns out to be an incredibly impoverished view of mathematics. And I have now, I feel I have a much broader uh, relationship with mathematics because I see mathematics not only as a tool, I see it as a language and as formal structures. I see it as a, as a, as a, as a verb, the procedures, the, and when I say procedures, I don't mean the routines. I mean like the process of, of being mathematical and, and solving and thinking and reasoning and rationalizing and justifying all those ing words. And, uh, and that's mostly where my affinity lives around mathematics is my relationship with mathematics is mathematics as a verb. And, and that's how I live. I love that. And I love that your initial math identity um, was enhanced because of the universality of math. When you, your language acquisition or, you know, when you had to learn a second language in order to learn, um, the math was the universal language that gave you some connection to what was really happening. Yeah. I think that's amazing. It's such a great story. And it speaks to um, the idea that math is universal. And I'm not sure that our learners always recognize that um, when they're stuck in the routines of math in classrooms sometimes until they're sort of exposed to that concept. So thank you so much for sharing. Everybody's math identity story has been truly different, inspirational, and um, very exciting in its own, its own little way. And, and what we've been talking about in Modern Learners Community is that everyone has a math identity. And we just need to make sure that we honor the math identity and not just allow ourselves or our learners to write ourselves off as not being math people. We want to right. avoid that. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that's really important, as highlighted in my story, is the identity is not static. It changes. It grows. It evolves. And we as teachers can have a, have a role in that. Or we can, have a, we can have a role in, in, in just cementing those negative experiences and, and identities with mathematics. So it's, it's, it's not just about that they have an identity. It's that the identity is evolving or can evolve with our guidance which your story illustrates so well. Thank you so much for sharing. Now I'd like to dig into um, 
your research around the thinking classroom specifically and the nine principles um, involved with that. But before you talk about, and we won't get into all nine principles, but we'll talk about a couple of them. But before we get into what they are, can you just tell me a little bit about um, how the research came about? I heard you talking about that on another um, podcast and it was super interesting. And the other thing that I want you to dive into a little bit is the challenges that were evident um, when you started that research. So if you can start by telling us how the research into thinking classrooms came about, I'll come back in, process that with you, and then we'll talk about the challenges that were there. Okay, um, sure. But before I start, though, uh, there's now 14 principles of a thinking classroom. So, and we're still not going to get into all 14. No, so. <laughs> but I must have, I must not have the 14. Um, no. are, is that, have you released all of the, all of them? I have, but this, like everything else, this has been a, a, a growth process. So my first publication on thinking classrooms had nine principles, but it's, but it's been evolving since then and the research has gotten deeper and broader and there's been some splitting and lumping in inside of those categories so when you looked at the nine the nine were actually uh 11 because one of those principles has now been split into three and then a few others have been added oh great tell me the story of this research please that'd be amazing so uh, thinking classrooms is a response to two observations that I made. Um, The first observation emerged from the phenomena um, of of seeing students not thinking. Now, now I want to tell a little bit about the background of that. Um, There were some circumstances that led to me visiting 40 classrooms in 40 different buildings uh, over about a five-month period. And I was, and I was in pursuit of something in particular there. I was actually in pursuit of seeing students thinking. Um, Or maybe I should back up a little bit. There was a precipitating event that caused me to have an epiphany when I sat in a classroom and I realized that students were not thinking. Um, And in fact, they were spending very little time of a 60 minute block actually thinking. And when I say thinking, I mean thinking mathematically, thinking in ways that I think all your listeners understand students need to be thinking in order to be successful in future grades and successful in life and so on. So So when you notice they weren't thinking, Hmm. would most people describe that as them, as the learners being disengaged or um, what, what do you, how would you describe what that looked like? So um, at first, when I noticed this, it was just a sense Right. It was and I I went back in my research later and I actually articulated that sense through through data. But initially it was a it was a sense that they weren't thinking. Now, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean there was an activity. There was lots of activity, but the activity itself did not require the students to think. Um, We could say that they were disengaged and, and, and engagement and disengagement actually became a really good measurement tool for for gauging whether students were thinking or not. Um, But there was also other forms of activity that students were engaged in or participating in that that kept them busy but didn't keep them thinking. So for example, writing notes is an activity that can consume up to 40 minutes of a classroom. and what I was observing in that context was that students were not doing any thinking. They were busy. They were doing stuff. They were writing mathematical things, but they weren't. They thinking. were compliant. Yeah, I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> um, so anyway, so this this epiphany led me to one understand if this was a one off event. Was this something that was happening just in this one classroom that I was uh, observing? And that's when I went off and visited forty classrooms in forty different buildings, and 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 everywhere I went, I saw the same thing. Students were not thinking, um, and, and, and I actually went back and I did a, a bunch of empirical work on that, and the baseline data showed that within a 60-minute period, about 20% of the kids spent about 20% of the time thinking, and the rest of the kids spent none of the time thinking. And that was sort of the baseline data. And again, I don't want to say that that, that doesn't mean that they weren't busy or active. 
They just weren't thinking. Um, so then would you, interestingly enough, I don't like to think about um, where, you know, achievement is measured, but when you were observing the non-thinking classrooms, were those classrooms in schools that were high achieving according to some standardized test results, or were they just a cross-section of schools that were near you or whatnot? So the way, the way I actually accessed these classrooms was I reached out to people in education that I knew, and I asked them to recommend to me teachers that they had heard were good. And when I was with those teachers, I also asked them to recommend to me teachers that were good. And so I followed this thread of good teachers. Um, and I'll come to that in a minute. But so what I got was a really diverse cross section. I was in, in, in French immersion schools and English classrooms. I was in low socioeconomic, high socioeconomic, everywhere from primary to secondary, private, public. I got a huge diversity. Um, and what I have to say is, the teachers who I was recommended to observe were good teachers. These were teachers who knew their content, they cared about delivering the content, they cared that the kids were, were, were receiving and achieving, and the kids were not falling through the cracks. It was, there was not a single teacher I observed, that I, but that standard measures would not say were good teachers. And these teachers were all in a really awkward position because they were all faced with this situation where they had students who weren't thinking and they were willing to acknowledge that, but they had stuff they had to get through. So they were, they were forced to design and implement their teaching that, kept, that got students moving through content without requiring them to think. So teachers were planning their teaching on the assumption that students either couldn't or wouldn't think. But they were good teachers, like they were passionate teachers and they wanted to do well. They wanted to do good and they wanted to, to do justice to these kids. But they were in this really tough paradigm. You know, they had curriculum to get through and they had kids who weren't thinking. And the activities that they planned were actually supported and coming right out of the resources that they were using. Textbooks are just as compliant in, or uh, culpable in this phenomena as well as were some of the curriculum resources and so on and so forth. There was, there was an overemphasis on mimicking, for example, having students just parrot what the teacher was doing and an underemphasis on having students actually think about what they were doing. Wow. So that is very interesting to me. So where, what happens next? Okay. It's such a great so, story. So, so this was just one of the observations. The observation that everywhere I went, students were not thinking and teachers were planning their teaching on the assumption that students either couldn't or wouldn't think. So that was one side of this equation. The other side of the equation was when I was observing these classrooms, um, I realized that classrooms look more alike than they look different. Like, like physically they look the same. There was a number of times where I would walk into a classroom and I would say, oh, no, hold on, I've been in this classroom. Pull out my digital photo, look at it. Yeah, this is, I've been in this room, check my logbook. Oh no, different building. Um, and this happened multiple times that, that I just kept stumbling into these spaces that all looked the same. And then what happened in the classrooms looked the same. There was this sort of, you know, the, the, there was a lecture component and there was a question and answer component and there was maybe a student demonstration component. And then, and then maybe some collaborative work, but there was almost always, um, every lesson almost always concluded with a dive back into individual seat work. And, and, and I'm not judging any of these practices. I just realized that all of these practices were, were happening everywhere and they were, they were the same everywhere I went. And, and what's more, I realized that these practices and the way classrooms look have been the same for a very long time about a hundred years. And if you look at photos from classrooms a hundred years ago, they look the same as classrooms today. If you look at the, what kids are doing in classrooms a hundred years ago, it looks the same as many classrooms. And I don't want to say all classrooms and I don't want to say it always looks the same, but I was seeing this similarity. And what this is, is it, it's called an institutional norm. Um, we talk about classroom norms. These are the norms that a teacher establishes for their students in their classroom. We talk about school norms, and these are the practices that everybody shares within the class, in the school. 
But these are institutional normative structures. This, this, these are structures that have actually elevated to the very institution of school. And I see them not just in the 40 classrooms that I was in. I see them in classrooms all around the world that I've been in. Because I've been in classrooms on four different continents in tons of different countries. And I see the same thing everywhere I go. And, and if, we, if we dig into the history of why this is, it, it doesn't take very much to, to discover that when public education was created in the Western world, it was created based on, on, on the models of three existing institutions. So education, public education was modeled on the, on the church because that also already had sort of a, a educate the masses approach to it. It was, it was modeled on the factory model and in particular the assembly line because that was 150 years ago, the best way to mass produce anything. And it was modeled on prisons because that's where we learned how to manage people who don't wanna be there. And, and that last one may cause you to smirk or, or question it, but the, my kids graduated from a high school that was designed by a company that only designs two types of buildings, prisons and schools. And I was, I was talking to a teacher just the other day, they're having massive uh, renovation, or they're having a new school built and the school is almost finished. The construction company is leaving that site to go build a, a prison. Like there is a huge amount of things that come from these three institutions. And when public education was built 150 years ago, it was built on the principles of creating conformity and compliance. Yes. And my sixth grade, my son, who is in sixth grade, just last night said <laughs> he just got home from prison. Yeah. And I, you know, he was not joking. I was not happy with him. But we, we moved to that conversation. But the irony of the fact that the kids say that too. So yeah. they, they, I don't know if he would know that, you know, architect yeah. build two kinds of buildings, but he definitely feels that conformity and compliance um, goal when he goes to school every day. Yeah. And, and, and we have to ask ourselves, we're 20 years into the 21st century learning revolution. Is compliance and conformity the actual outcomes that we want out of that system? So now, and are these outdated principles? And, and I think we could all agree that they are. So what happened for me was, I came to this realization that everywhere I went, I was seeing students not thinking and teachers stuck in this paradigm of having to plan their teaching for students who aren't thinking. And everywhere I went, I saw these institutional normative structures and practices that were the same everywhere. And I started to wonder if actually the actual institutional normative structures were we're contributing to this sort of lack of thinking. And if that's true, it means we're gonna to have to break these institutional normative structures in order to create the thinking that I was hoping to see. And, and that became my research question, my research goal. And that was the birth of building thinking classrooms was, and, and, and then I gathered over 400 teachers around me and we conducted hundreds and hundreds of micro experiments where we were trying to break the norms to see if we could get more thinking out of it. And that was a birth of building thinking classrooms. Right. So when I was reading the research where I saw nine principles, not 14, mm -hmm. but when I was reading that research, I, I paid specific attention to the two challenges that you mentioned in that. And one of them was centered on engagement and the other was centered on teachers' willingness to abandon legacy practices once it was determined that they were not producing thinking classrooms. Can you speak specifically to how you've seen those challenges evolve as your research has evolved or have, have they not? Are those challenges still present? Okay, so uh, there has definitely been evolution. So the first, the first part about engagement. So engagement, um, Engagement serves a very particular purpose in, in my research. So um, engagement and thinking are things that I talk about almost as if they're interchangeable, um, but they're not the same thing. So uh, whereas thinking is a private invisible process and engagement is an embodied externalized process or action. And, 
would you say thinking is um, cognitively based and engagement is emotionally or feeling based? Yeah. So, so uh, we could, we could say that thinking is cognitive and emotion or um, engagement is affective embodied uh, experiences. Now, the interesting thing about them is they always travel together. Yes. If a student is thinking, they are engaged. And if a student is engaged, they are thinking. And if you think, you listeners, that there's been a time where you've been engaged without thinking, you've actually been entertained, which is why edutainment has made such a, has made such uh, a huge uh, taken such a huge market share in education in the last few decades. Because if students aren't thinking, the only way we can actually capture their attention is through, through entertainment. Um, so engagement for me is an indicator. It's a leading indicator, not a trailing indicator. It's a leading indicator of thinking. You know, things like performance on a standardized test is a trailing indicator, and it comes way too late for us to have any impact. We needed instruments that could we could assess immediately if it was having an effect on student thinking. Um, and, and I'll come back to, I just want to jump back here for a minute since we're talking about that, is, well, we never talked about whether or not thinking is important, right? And you're nodding, of course thinking is important, um, but why is it important? And we can say, well, it's part of our it's, it's part of the processes or competencies that we want students to develop. It's part of the toolkit that we want them to develop. But more than that, thinking is a necessary precursor to learning. If students are not thinking, they're not learning. If they're, so, so for me, thinking is the, the most important thing that I wanted to pursue. So engagement is a way for me to have a leading indicator on, on whether or not thinking is happening. In terms of uh, the challenge of working with teachers who are willing to abandon um, those sort of uh, entrenched and traditional and uh, culturally embedded practices, um, what was interesting about that, so the teachers that I surrounded myself with that participated in the research were willing, they came to me because they were willing to make change. So, so in the, from the research perspective, it was really easy to work with teachers because teachers who want to make change um, are incredibly courageous and persistent and innovative. And we worked uh, on two week cycles, which was um, not so intimidating. So we would try something for two weeks and see if it had an impact on student thinking. Now, two weeks is not too long. If it's going well or if it's going bad, we, can, we know that it's only a two week period and we can make an adjustment. In the US, lots of people are calling those rapid cycles of improvement. Yes. <laughs> right I call now. It, plan, study, do, act. <laughs> yeah. We're hearing and, all about those. Yeah. And I call it rapid prototyping, which is this idea that let's get some quick data. Let's let's see if this is going to make a difference. And then and then what we would do is we would refine and, and reject and refine and reject different practices until we started converging on practices that were actually creating more thinking. And not just thinking for a particular teacher, but this, this practice was mobile and portable and could be picked up by teachers and different teachers at different grades and so on and so forth. Um, so in that regard, it wasn't a challenge because I was working with teachers who were just as passionate as I was. Since then, you know, so that was part of the, the building thinking classroom gener generative portion where I was building the thinking classroom research and, and, but then, then I output it for the first time. 2014 was the first time I published and presented on thinking classrooms. And now there was this whole huge uh, consumer portion of it. And, and, and that had its, it, it benefits as well, because now these passionate teachers were picking up these tools and they were continuing the innovation uh, themselves. And, and there's been a huge reflexivity. And that's why the framework has grown from nine to 14 is because since it was out in sort of a public open source space and, and talented and passionate teachers were, were playing with it, more things emerged. Um, 
and and I continue to do workshops and I continue to provide in-service uh, education around the thinking classroom. And one of my one of my particular conditions for coming and working with teachers is I only work with teachers who want to work with me. So I've I've for the most part don't feel the challenge of trying to sell thinking classrooms. Um, and so I don't feel the challenge of trying to convince teachers that they should uh, uh, abandon certain practices. The, the workshop for, for the most part has teachers experiencing what a thinking classroom feels like. And then they get to decide for themselves what they want to do with it. My job is not to try to sell them on the idea. My job is to give them the experience and then the benefit of the research. And then they're going to have to uh, exercise their professional autonomy around whether or not and to what degree they want to implement that. That sounds fascinating. Um, in Modern Learners community, we work with a significant number of school leaders, superintendent level principals, uh, lots of curriculum specialists, as well as many teachers. And the idea of only working with those who want to work with you is fascinating. We're charged with instilling that want to work with you. And that is the challenge. But I found the research and the work to be extremely compelling. Um, but my own personal experience um, is what brought me specifically um, to your work. In the last couple of weeks, we've had Dr. Nikki Newton on the podcast, and she referenced your work. We also um, are very familiar with Dr. Bob Dylan's work on learning spaces, and he also references your work. And so what I want to do is I want to talk specifically about the principle that relates to vertical erasable spaces. Mm -hmm. And that will sort of bridge that gap for us too between uh, math and spaces and places for next month. So my personal experience with vertical erasable spaces is they work. <laughs> I taught special education for three years in a high school classroom and I, it was mostly in an inclusive environment for students with learning disabilities. So I didn't have a lot of pull out um, opportunities. However, I did have one um, section where I had to teach pre-algebra concepts to. And as I was teaching, I realized that I could get through the content so much faster and with more depth if they were at the whiteboard. And they would both have, they all, my two or three students would have their own space on the whiteboard and we would talk about whatever it was in the book. I'm, I was not a trained math teacher, so I did the best I could with what I had. But I know watching them work at the board told me a lot more about what they were thinking and learning than I would have gotten if they had been on paper. So let's start there. Can you talk okay. to me about vertical erasable spaces? Okay. So, um, so let me let me start by saying that um, our research was guided on the principle that we're going to look at institutionally normative practices and we're going to evaluate what the degree to which they they generate thinking and we're going to explore alternative practices to see if we can get more thinking out of students and and we kind of compartmentalized all of teaching practice into fourteen subcategories of practices. And one of those subcategories was where students do their thinking. Like where do they do their work when they're doing their thinking? And one of the most enduring institutional normative practices is the notebook. And the notebook has become this sort of panacea for everything that happens, right? Kids do their notes in it, they do their homework in it, they do their exercises in it in class. They, they, they just use notebooks all the time and we were encountering students actually who spent more time writing in their notebooks than they spent sleeping in a 24-hour period and and so we ask ourselves so is a notebook actually the best place for students to do their thinking uh, and if not what are the alternatives um, so the the alternatives that we explored and, and keep in mind that one of the practices that comes before 
uh, where students do their work was around collaboration. So, so one of our default positions coming out of that research is that students are going to work collaboratively here. So the question is not so much where do students do their thinking, it's where do students do collaborate on their thinking. Um, so the, the, the spaces that we explored, and this is a subset of the spaces we explored, but this became the basis of my controlled experiment, was uh, we had some groups writing in notebooks, we had some groups writing on whiteboards up on the walls, and we had some groups writing on whiteboards that were at their tables, and we had some groups writing on big pieces of flip chart paper that were taped up on the wall, and some groups writing on flip chart paper that was on their tables. And those became the five uh, work surfaces that we explored. And, um, and when we gathered data on that, by far, the two work surfaces where they worked on whiteboards were the best. And, and between those two, the one that was vertical was by far produced the best results. And the, and the results we looked at were things like everything from engagement to perseverance to uh, participation, which included inclusion, uh, and so on and so forth. And, and how long it took them to get started on a task and how long they were willing to work on a task. And, and we, we use these sorts of metrics to see which one actually had the better result. Interestingly, the notebook came last. And it came last by a long shot. And, and as the research went on, this became sort of a, a, a theme, which was that in every single piece, micro experiment we did, the normative practice came out last. And in some cases, we tried 10, 15, 20 different practices that were, were alternative to the normative practice, and the normative practice scored the worst. And this kept happening in the building thinking classroom research. And it, and it kind of makes sense in hindsight, because those normative practices emerged out of a culture of conformity and compliance. And if we're trying to get thinking going, then that isn't really the kind of space that's going to allow that to happen. So moving forward, um, what emerged was that these vertical, we called them whiteboards to begin with, until we discovered we could write on windows, and we could write on vinyl picnic table covers, and we could write on cellophane, and shower board, and these third party products that are being produced. It didn't really matter what it was. It wasn't that it was a whiteboard. What was important was that it was vertical and it was erasable. And that's when we shifted our, our, our uh, terminology to vertical non-permanent surfaces. So non-permanent referring to the fact that it's erasable. Now here's the interesting thing. We had the results way before we had any explanation for why that was a result. And that was another theme that kept occurring in the thinking classroom research, which for me, is what made this research so exciting was that I would have answers before I had explanations, which is sort of antithetical to the way we do research often, where we start by coming producing hypotheses based on prior research and so on and so forth. Right. So here, and so what that does for me though, it's funny that you have that. That's my life because I've been telling everybody since I was teaching in that pre-algebra classroom. I do a lot of instructional coaching in my role, and I've been saying to every math teacher I've met for a long time, if a student is struggling with math from what you can see, just have them go to the whiteboard. Yeah. And do you know what one of the complaints, or not, com it's not a complaint, but one of the concerns that teachers have, and I can tell you that my own children share this concern, is that there's a void between if they work something out on the whiteboard because, mm -hmm. and it's not, you know, a classroom, like it's not ubiquitous in the classroom. Everybody's at the whiteboard writing yeah. out their work, but if it's because they need to stand up because it will help them think they're concerned about how they get what they did on the whiteboard to their notebook yeah, so okay. they can turn it in. So let me... I have the workaround for that. Okay. I take pictures and slide right. into a doc and email it. It's like the simplest thing, yeah. but when it, it's, it's well, a barrier, if it's not a classroom practice for all. Let, let, me, let me address that, but let me come back to why vertical whiteboards were so, so much better. So it took us a long time to get at that. Um, and we, what started to emerge were some 
some explanations and some explanations that were rooted in literature and theory and so on and so forth. But for example, we know that standing is a more active posture than sitting. So if we can get the students into a more physically active space, then they are more likely to be cognitively active. Um, we know that um, if we have them all working on the whiteboards, for example, uh, the work is oriented the same for every member of the group, whereas if they're sitting at a table, someone's looking at it upside down. Um, we know that if everyone's up on the whiteboards, they have access to each other's work, which causes this what we call mobility of knowledge, which really just populates the space with more knowledge and, and results in more thinking, more learning. Um, it makes it easier for the teacher to observe what students are doing and thinking so that they can intervene at appropriate time. Um, there's research that shows that having this, the head in an upright position is cognitively better than having it in a downwards position like you have when you're writing in a notebook. Uh, this is not my research, this is research that exists. There's research that shows that, well, we know this, that 80% of communication is nonverbal. So it's, it's, it's done through gestures and facial expressions and pointing and so on and so forth. And it turns out that when we're standing, we have a larger gesture canvas. So it's easier to communicate nonverbally when we're standing. So these are all really nice explanations and, and they go a long way to explaining why it's, it's better. But they pale in comparison to the result that emerged slowly over time and that doesn't exist in the literature. And that is that it turns out that when students are sitting, they feel anonymous. And when they are, and the further they sit from the teacher, and the more things that are between them and the teacher, the more anonymous they feel. And when students feel anonymous, they are more likely to disengage. And when they disengage, they stop thinking. And, and what, they hide. Yes. They're and hiding. Both, they're hiding. And that's both a conscious and a subconscious act. Um, but when we make everybody stand up and work on these vertical non-permanent surfaces, all of a sudden, that sense of anonymity is gone. And it doesn't feel like they're being outed. You know, like you talked about the case of one student working on the whiteboard. That's a huge barrier because there's a sort of public display and an outing of, uh, and potential shaming or potential for shaming that comes with that. But when everybody's on the whiteboards, that just, there, there isn't that same negative association with it. But at the same time, there isn't this feeling of anonymity. And the students stay more engaged and they think more simply because that. Now, this, you talked about this barrier. There's many barriers to this for, for some teachers. For other teachers, it's like they experience it for half an hour and they're like, oh, where can I get these? And, and within a few hours, they've gone and they've gone to the dollar store and they have found products and they have hacked their classroom so that every group of three students has a vertical workspace. Others find, find barriers in this. And some of the barriers are, um, won't the students feel sort of it's too public and they'll be intimidated. And uh, potentially, but if teachers get to experience this themselves as learners, they realize that that goes away immediately. Um, I don't have enough uh, wall space to, to create the vertical surfaces. And to that I say, we've never found a classroom that we couldn't hack with a variety of products. And we, we've never found a classroom that we couldn't hack for less than $200, where we could have everybody up on a whiteboard. You don't need the full market whiteboards installed that take you three months to order and six months to install and, and so on and so forth. Um, another concern is exactly what you expressed. How do I take, how, wh where's the record? Where's the walk away? The, the, the thing that I can take with me. And the solution to that emerged relatively quickly when students started taking pictures with their cell phones and so on and so forth. But with that came another barrier because the students assumed that because they had the picture of the work, that they had knowledge. And, and, and my, my line is always, you know, the digital random access memory in our phone is not the same as a random access memory in our head yet. But so taking a picture was not the same as, 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 as having acquired the knowledge and learning. And, and we actually started spending a lot of time engaging in this process of how, how do we move 
because there's a bigger issue here. When, this, when the group works at the whiteboard, in that space, in that moment, they achieve often amazing things. We've seen over and over and over time again, where an entire class working in this capacity is able to move through an entire unit of study, five, six, seven days worth of content in 35 to 45 minutes. And we see this on a regular basis. And when they're working in that space, so much is possible. Um, but the problem is, What's happening in that space, we refer to it as synergy, but it's a sort of collective knowing and doing. And, and in that collective knowing and doing, everybody could be an equal stakeholder and everybody is able to do it. But then two weeks later, we test them and we don't see a huge improvement in their individual knowing and doing. And our bigger question became, how do we actually transfer that, that synergistic collective knowing and doing to individual personal knowing, doing, understanding, and thinking. And, and it turns out that there was a whole bunch of tools in the Thinking Classroom Toolkit that helped with that. There's four of them in particular. And one of them is how we consolidate a lesson after they've been working on the whiteboards. The next one is how students write their own notes. We call them notes to their future forgetful self. Um, these are not copying what the teacher wrote. They're not fill in the blank notes. These are where the student sits down and in a thinking way decides what is it that they have learned today and what do they have to write down so that in three weeks they can remember what they learned today. Then there's some opportunities for them to check their understanding. This is what in a normative practice would be called homework, which we had reams of data showed wasn't working. Um, but when we changed the paradigm from homework to what we call check your understanding questions and change some practices around that, all of a sudden we saw students doing it and doing it for the right reason. And the reason was they're going to use this as an opportunity to see if they've actually been able to take that collective knowing and doing and transfer it into personal knowing and doing. And then there's some more formal self-assessments. Which, um, which we call, refer to as helping students understand where they are and where they're going. And those four practices, all of which exist within the Thinking Classroom framework, have been shown to really help move this collective knowing and doing into individual understanding, knowing and doing. And, and, and with that comes all the walk away, the artifacts, the, the record. Of, of what it was that happened on the whiteboard, but it turned out that the record of what happened on the whiteboard was, was secondary to the production of the record of what happened on the whiteboard. The creating and the organizing of those notes to my future forgetful self was more important and more impactful than actually having the record. And isn't that actually computational thinking that you're describing? Uh, you, what, the transfer? Yeah, like the gathering of the evidence of what happened on the whiteboard yeah. and pulling all of that data or evidence of whatever it was they did or learned and being able to synthesize that into their notes to themselves. Yeah, well, some jurisdictions may refer to that as computational thinking. Um, we just refer to it as thinking. Right. Well, and I was thinking about our work um, in studying math about really focusing on computational thinking rather than procedural thinking. Yeah. So the, the difference between procedural and analytical and what I think I hear you saying in the thinking classroom is that the transfer from the collaborative whiteboard work to the individual um, transfer, knowing individually what it is, that's where they're going from, you know, they're getting to the analytical side, the computational oh, yeah. side of what they're trying to, to learn and remember for their future self. So earlier in the discussion, I mentioned mimicking, which by far is the, the most normative practice in, 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 in normative settings. Um, and mimicking is all about that sort of procedural knowing or procedural doing. Um, thinking, in thinking classrooms, the teacher never gives students anything that they can mimic. So I love that. Now so that we, is a challenge. I'm yeah. sure there are people that say, I don't get that. that yeah. That's where the professional learning happens, right? Because yeah. I find that being an immediate 
stop yeah. in my well, confidence. So, so, so mimicking, we, we had some interesting data on the mimicking. We worked with over 20 teachers uh, and we were looking in classrooms to see what students are actually doing in these normative practices. And, and 100% of the teachers said the same thing, which was, I don't want my students to mimic. Okay, mimicking is okay at the beginning. Maybe that's a good place to start. But what I really want them to do is move beyond mimicking to thinking. Okay, so 100% of the teachers said that. I don't want my students to mimic. We interviewed over 200 kids who mimicked. 100% of the kids who mimicked said, my teacher wants me to mimic. So this, this is a place where I'm spending some time doing some more thinking and work right now. But, but I also have research that showed that uh, only 4% of kids who mimic are willing to go beyond mimicking as a thinking strategy or as a strategy. So you teach them a procedure, they'll do the procedure. And we, we may teach them the procedure as a starting point with the hope that they'll move beyond it and get into that analytic thinking. Only 4% are willing to go beyond. 4 to 6% are willing to go beyond the mimicking into the analytic thinking. Like, why would you? I've given you a tool, the easiest tool in the world. Why would they want to then abandon that tool and go do something that's hard? It, like behavioral economics says that that just isn't going to happen. Yeah, they'd have to be very invested. And they don't, so does that speak to relevance of the content? And does the, the relevance make them more willing to go beyond mimicking if they find a connection to something? Um, okay, that's a, that's a big question. Um, so I can say this. Um, the only way to get the, the majority of your students to get away from mimicking is to stop giving them things that they can mimic. Okay. Right. Like that, like, like that's it. Um, relevance is an interesting thing because now we're treading on that line that math is a tool again. And, and I think math is so much more than a tool. So, so relevance is maybe too narrow a term. I think what happens is when students start to develop confidence in themselves as thinkers, then thinking starts to become what mathematics is for them. And until they have that confidence as thinking, then what mathematics is for them is a collection of things, uh, of things to know, things to memorize, and things to be able to reproduce. I love it. So first of all, the cautionary tale that I have that I've learned from you is that when I think about math being relevant... I limit it to being a tool yeah. and math is more than a tool. I'm going to listen to that again for myself and I'm going to encourage all of our listeners who are like me and want, um, want to be a math person but are not living the life of a math teacher or in the math field to not rely so heavily on making math relevant. Oh my gosh, that was an eye-opening thought for me that I need to spend some time with and I appreciate very, very much. And I also appreciate that math is not just a tool. Um, I, I, I don't believe it to be a tool. I think it's, as you pointed out in your identity story, it, there's so much universality to it um, mm -hmm. that it is much more of a language than a tool and a way of thinking and being. So I appreciate that. And I just have to tell you that you could talk about this research with me for at least another hour and I would not even be, I would be totally engaged and thinking about everything. But we need to close it out a little bit very, very soon. But before we do, I wondered if you could share what you're most excited about in the work that you're doing now. Um. Yeah, this, this idea of I'm always excited in the work that I'm doing around thinking classrooms, because for me, it's it's been the itch that has got has driven me for the last 16 years. It's this it's and I think part of it that makes it so interesting is the, the amazing teachers I get to work with. And and even now I work with teachers all the time that are coming to learn about the framework but they bring such passion and such dedication to wanting to do things better for their students 
They have amazing questions. They go away and they try it and then they innovate in ways that I learn from so much. Um, so that's always sustained me. And, and with that, and with their questions and with the new, the emergence of new results, always comes this phenomenon of we have answers before we have explanations. And now trying to get those explanations has always been so exciting. Um, right now, lately I've been working a lot around thinking about how thinking classrooms transfers into other subjects. And we have transferred it into every other subject, by the way. You read, you totally read my mind. That's exactly what my question was, is how transferable is it to other disciplines? So there are 14 practices in the thinking classroom framework. Uh, only one practice makes it specific to mathematics, and that is what the nature of a thinking task is. And, and so the, so, and, and what I mean by that is that in mathematics, a thinking task is different than it is in language arts, and it's different than it is in social studies. So other than that, other than getting our heads around what makes a thinking task, and a thinking activity in other subjects, all of the other practices turn out to work the same. Now, that's not entirely true if we're talking about physical education or we're talking about art, but it certainly is true if we're talking about science, social studies, English. Um, and in, in terms of transferability, the place we found it, okay, so the, the math context transfers perfectly into physics because like they're just so connected. Uh, and it transfers into a portion of chemistry stoichiometry, which again, which is, is, is just so mathematical. But aside from those places, the, the easiest place we've ever transferred it into is language arts. And, and because there's so many rich contexts in language arts to, to create thinking tasks and, and, and to create thinking tasks that necessitate students talking to each other because of the, of the huge subjectivity of the field, it, it, it just, opens a space up for, for debate and discussion. So that's one of the areas I'm really excited about. The other one is, you know, I tore down normative practices um, and built them back up with the explicit goal of creating thinking. I've been wondering a lot lately about what if I tore down the practices, the normative practices, and I built it up around something else like equity or, um, uh, socialization or some other principle that we hold dear in education, what would it look like? And some of the teachers I work with that I've done some thinking around this are pretty convinced that a lot of the practices would end up being the same. So one of the practices is how we form uh, collaborative groups. And the research clearly showed that we want to do so in a random fashion. We want to randomly place the kids into, into collaborative groups. That has had a tremendous effect on community within classrooms. And one of the things that has emerged from that is watching the way it unlocks empathy. And, and it turns, kids have a tremendous capacity for empathy towards their peers. And, and when we can unlock that, a lot of really amazing things happen in classrooms. I, I absolutely agree with you. So I would love to see you begin that work, but I would encourage you and say the same things that the people you're working with say is that they're there. Um, they just need to be employed in building up those other structures or other principles that we hold dear. Thank you so much, Peter. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation because I appreciate what the principles bring to classrooms and I would love for all classrooms to be thinking classrooms, but your re research is just plain fascinating and the stories that you tell around it are amazing. So thank you so much for joining us and I do hope to stay in touch. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Modern Learners Podcast. Remember to grab a link to Peter's website at modernlearners.com slash thinkingclassrooms. You will have access to all of his greatest work in that space. You can also join our back channel conversation in the Modern Learners community. Be sure to head over to modernlearners.community to sign in or sign up. We'd love to have you in the conversation. Next week, we'll be shifting our conversation more fully from math to places and spaces. Tom Vander Ark from Getting Smart is joining me to discuss his new book, The Power of Place. 
be sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode.